and good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Christology is the study of Christ. It's a branch of uh, fundamental theology or systematic theology. And uh, oftentimes in modern uh, days, the Christologies that theologians create are composed without a whole lot of attention to traditional metaphysics, um, the classical philosophical understanding of reality that comes to us, uh, Aristotle and through Thomas Aquinas. Today we take up some time with Father Thomas White about this question of uh, St. Thomas, uh, Christology, and the Incarnate Lord, the name of his book, and Father White is uh, the author of many books. He's been with us before, in fact. Um, he also is Associate Professor of Systematic Theology at the Dominican House of Studies here in the States. And in Rome, he's Director of the Thomistic Institute at the Angelicum. Father, good to have you back here. Thanks. Hi, Al. Great to be here. Thanks a lot. Let's talk a little bit about this, because I think most, uh, I would think most listeners don't understand too much about how uh, modern Christology has ignored, uh, you know, the contributions of St. Thomas. Why don't you kind of sketch out for us your project here? Well, you know, so when you talk about the modern study of Jesus Christ, you have a, a lot of diverse approaches, and some of them are very much in the ambit of the Catholic Church, and some are them of them are pretty deeply divergent or incompatible. And uh, what I try to do in this book, The Incarnate Lord, is look at ways that uh, things that Aquinas, as Thomas Aquinas said in his massive study of the person of Jesus in the third part of the Summa Theologiae, his famous, um, can help us kind of evaluate the um, advantages and disadvantages of different kinds of modern Christology. And sometimes I do engage pretty critically because you can see where neglecting the Catholic heritage has been uh, you know, detrimental to ways of thinking about Jesus. Uh, some of those problems that come up by ignoring the Catholic heritage, would they be, for instance, that Jesus didn't know his own identity uh, until sometime? Yeah, so one of the classic yeah. ways that things go wrong is that we get an alternative account of the, you could call it the consciousness of Jesus, or Jesus' self-awareness. Mm -hmm. And the classic move here is to do two things, one of two things, usually they're connected. One is to re, um, re-describe Jesus' actual historical consciousness, not based primarily on the Gospels or how the Gospels depict him, but instead by substituting what you might call a, a construction about the historical Jesus and talking about who Jesus, you know, quote-unquote, really was before the Gospels were written and how he thought of himself, his own consciousness. And then the second move that's related is to say, one, once we get back to that real Jesus there, the historical Jesus and his historically situated consciousness as a first century Jew, then we see his real values emerge, or his real religious concerns, or his real you know, religious genius. And it's not what the Catholic Church says it is. It is, in fact, this alternative religious worldview mm -hmm. or moral worldview. And almost inevitably, it's usually strongly correlated to the values and religious beliefs of the scholar in question. <laughs> exactly. Or the theologian yeah. in question. Yeah, yeah. The, 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 the Jesus ends up, the Jesus of the particular scholar ends up looking a whole lot like that scholar. 
Yeah, now to be fair, you know, that's been one of the main critiques of a lot of modern Christology right. and modern biblical studies of themselves. You know, so you, it's not that there's naivete, there's actually, well, there is naive, a layer of naivete that's existed in the modern, you know, tradition. But then there's another whole group of people who are typically skeptical, and actually that can be very useful. Hmm. I mean, there. I mean, people shouldn't people be a little suspicious of a scholarly construct that claims to be able to get behind the canonical gospels and create an authoritative picture of Jesus, you know, which is prior to the canonical gospels. Okay, so that's a that's the really that's one of the major issues, right? So yeah. should we just as Christians and Catholics just say any attempt to get behind the gospels is already an illegitimate intellectual enterprise? Like that's just a, 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 a hypothetical construction that's effectively conjectural and intellectually bankrupt. And you know there are a lot of Catholic theologians and also some Protestant theologians who strongly argue that position. And you can hold that church. There's nothing wrong with it. Then there's a group of people who are on the other extreme who think, you know, we know enough from the Gospels. They, they believe that the Gospels give us a historical picture. They're not skeptics about the Gospels, but they think it gives us so much information that we can almost with certitude demonstrate who Jesus really was, mm -hmm. a kind of strong apologetic pro project. And there's, of course, people who hold that view in the Catholic Church, and you can hold that view too. And then there's, a, I would say, a kind of middle position, which is, yes, it's, it's conjectural. We can't really, you know, we can't really prove anything about who the historical Jesus was back behind the Gospels. But if the Gospels are historically, if we know by faith that the Gospels are historically true, and, and we then look kind of as historians and look for reasonable, probable signs, that what would it look like for the Jesus of the Gospels to have existed in the first century, right, right. kind of in the, in the conditions they show us? And that, I think, is a modest like um, probabilist sure. historical project, and I think that kind of apologetics, I'm I'm personally favorable to it because I think yeah. because Jesus did exist, and because the Gospels are written so close to the events, and because we know with supernatural faith that they they convey truth, then I think that we should also look kind of his, his, as sober historians and try to think about what it would be like for the Jesus of Nazareth depicted in the Gospels to have existed in the context, of, you know, a couple of generations before the apostles, when the temple existed and, and the things mm -hmm. he's saying, what is it like to put them in historical context? Now, the danger you're going to say that because you did that, you can, you know, conclude, con you can prove conclusively the faith. That's not true. Like, you can't prove as were, um, I don't know, you can't prove to someone that Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that you can't demonstrate he's God. Right. That's a mystery of faith that's revealed to us. But you can you can make strong arguments that he claimed to have historically, that the historical Jesus did seem to do things and say things when you put them in the historical context, which shows he is, as it were, inviting you to believe he has a divine authority. Right. And that may be one of the reasons he's killed. You know, so that what I'm saying is you still believe the Gospels fundamentally, but you can also argue that the historical Jesus um, makes sense. We can best how the, the Christian movement and the Gospels came into being, if we take seriously their claims about the historical Jesus themselves, and then put him in a historical context, and then the story kind of makes sense why he was so controversial. Yeah, so it, right. It's a kind of moderate project. Yeah. You know? And in this context, Aquinas is helpful because he thinks a lot about not this specific modern question, but how did Jesus have extraordinary self-awareness? 
so see, Thomas Aquinas writes about like the prophecy of Christ, his infused knowledge. I mean, how is he so, as it were, stable in his knowledge of who he himself is? Mm-hmm. How does he got have this deep self awareness about his own authority, his union with the Father? You know, speaking from reflection on the Gospels, Thomas Aquinas articulates to us uh, like a kind of deep vision of the human knowledge of Christ, the special human knowledge of Christ, and that's really interesting to put that in you know, in dialogue with the best contemporary historical Jesus scholarship that's faithful, try to show how the Jesus of the Gospels has extraordinary human knowledge of his divine identity. And what would it be like for him? What was it for? I should say it less conjecturally. What was it for him in his historical context to express that he was the Son of God in the language and the symbols of his time? That's a very interesting kind of project. Yes, it is. And is... uh... The Saint Thomas is Saint Thomas able to do this because he's still operating at a time where questions about metaphysics and ontology were important. Yeah, and I would say you know, look at in Catholic theology, it's what's we we maintained a kind of countercultural where these questions of ontology, metaphysics, and human epistemology from the scholastic tradition were really normal normal ways of approaching these issues yeah. until the 1950s, right. and it didn't disappear completely either. I mean, there's still uh, quite a lot of people, even in the last few decades, who've been writing, but it's the minority culture in Catholic theology. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, you know, another another thing that's a, a different that arises in modern theology, but that's connected to what you're talking about, like the ontology stuff, is the person of Christ the person of Christ is divine. Mm-hmm. And that we have to, as Catholics, believe that he is one of the Trinity. Right. As it says in the famous declarations of the creed in the ancient world, one of the one of the Trinity was crucified. The, the eternal Son of God has become human, been crucified and right. risen from the dead in his human nature for us. So, you know, thinking about that, if, if you have, what happens is, in these modern scenarios sometimes, when all of human identity is put not in our being, like a metaphysical approach to the person, but in consciousness, like how am I aware of myself? What do I think of myself? What do I feel? Mm-hmm. Then you look at the human, this question of the human consciousness of Christ, and you try to build up his whole identity from there. Like, so this, what this looks like is Jesus was a very pious religious man. Jesus had an elevated ethical consciousness. Jesus had a deep living relationship with God who he called his father. I mean, those are all consciousness Christologies. And the problem with them is they're just off the mark from the New Testament and from classical Catholic theology, which is based on the New Testament. Because the classical approach is, who is this person? What is this person? This person is the Son of God. He's truly God and truly man. One person who is God subsisting in two natures. And that's the only way, really, to take the gospel seriously and to take the faith seriously is to think about the very being of Christ. When you touch the hand of Christ, when you touch the physical hand of Christ, you touch the physical hand of God. And so Christ is humanly subject to crucifixion on the on the cross. It is God who is crucified in his human nature, in his human body. So That's the, Catholic realism. Okay. You know? So th- let me then come to the question of, quote, the death of God. Uh, you know, what does that mean in this context? Yeah, okay. That's, so that's another modern Christological turn. You have some people who want to confess the divinity of Christ, and they believe in the Incarnation, but in the modern context, what they say is, 
if Christ died and God was subject to human death on the cross, then we also should say that the, that the divine nature of God, the divine essence of God suffered, or that God, you know, God in his deity suffered, or that God, even God in his deity, was somehow you know, subject to the mystery of death or extinction. That's a weird idea you find in Hegel. Father, hold it there. We'll come back and continue conversation, talking about really what technically is called the hypostatic union. Uh, Jesus, uh, the Word of God, a divine person taking on uh, human nature. And how does that affect uh, suffering? How does that affect death? Uh, does that touch the divine person? Those questions coming up in the next segment. There are lots of great ways to stay connected with Ave Maria Radio, like our Poll of the Week. This week, we want to know, has your diocese removed the general dispensation from ASEAN? Let us know now at AveMariaRadio.net. Scroll down on the homepage and click on Poll of the Week. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Father Thomas Joseph White, looking at his work in The Incarnate Lord, talking about what is called the hypostatic union, and that is the relationship between the Word of God as a divine person, the Son of God as a divine person, and taking on human nature. And how does that affect suffering? How does it affect death? Does God die? You know, here's the classic. The classic answer to this conundrum is to argue that we must maintain the distinction of natures. Jesus is God and man, and when he suffers, he can only suffer and die as man. Death is the separation of body and soul, human body from the human soul, and Jesus suffers human death. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that his divine nature suffers or that his divine nature undergoes diminishment of power or lessens or weakens in its divine capacity. What you see actually in the Gospels is when Jesus is dying, he can forgive the good thief. Right. There are miracles that are associated with the death of Christ that show the omnipotence of God, active in the world, even while Christ is crucified, which show that he as God is still with the Father and the Holy Spirit, active in the world. You know, so there's this mystery of God's abasement or self-emptying in his human death, but also of his power, even hidden in the corpse of Christ. Hmm. even hidden in the death of Christ, is the power to save us. And as Paul talks about the power of the cross, he right, just talk about right. the weakness of the cross. The power of the cross, Aquinas says, is the power of God hidden in Christ crucified, even in Christ crucified and Christ who dies, living power of God is always present and able to raise the dead. That's amazing. Then let me just jump to another problem that comes up. And that is so-called divine dereliction, when Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting Psalm 22 there. What is he experiencing at that point? Well, so that's a, that beautiful word of Christ from the cross where he quotes Psalm 22, My God, why have you abandoned me? Called the cry of dereliction, appears in the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew, not in the Gospel of Luke, not in the Gospel of John. And, you know, there's seven words, famously, from the cross that you find in the all—you put them all together from the four Gospels. You find seven famous so-called words from the cross or sentences. There's a, a lot of diverse interpretation of that, even in the classical Catholic tradition. Okay. And it's certainly permitted for a Catholic theologian to believe that Christ experienced a deep dereliction of soul and a great outpouring of 
you know, human suffering mm-hmm. in solidarity and identification with us. The real questions begin when we argue what that suffering is and how does it affect other aspects of Christ's human knowledge. So just to problematize it from within the Gospels themselves, okay? John's Gospel has Christ on the cross reflected as peaceful, and Luke also has him say, he says in John, it is accomplished. He has accomplished the mission of the Father. And in in Luke, he he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The kind of uh, pacific or peaceful majesty of Christ crucified. And then in Matthew and and Mark, you have this dereliction. Hmm. Uh, Now, are these just two, as it were, different historical portraits, different perspectives of theology of the early church? Or do they represent two of, as it were, states of the soul of Christ crucified? The majority tradition says, look, what we have here are compatible images that Christ in the crucifixion is both filled with the majesty and peace of being one with the Father, knowing as man, knowing in his human mind and heart that he's one with the Father and that he's victorious over sin, death, and the devil. But at the same time, the agony and excruciating suffering come from his identification with us, knowing our sinfulness, and being aware of the cost of dereliction in a way he's he's identified with us in our distance from God. And there's different ways to handle this, and you know then you get into different schools of thought. What Aquinas thinks is that Christ is never separated in his mind and heart from the Father. He always experiences beatifying peace, the heights of his mind, his man, that he's one with God, one with the Father, that the victory is, is assumed. But also, because of his knowledge, that's extraordinary. Jesus has an extraordinary knowledge of darkness and sin that he sees into the abyss of the human experience. And he has, Aquinas says, the deepest pangs of contrition that any human heart has ever felt. Hmm. And so he has this deep agony of love in identification with human beings who are alienated from God. And so Aquinas has this kind of beautiful both and of peace and agony of knowledge and love, but also of identification with us in our sin and not himself being a sinner, but in the sense of Christ reaching out to us in an acute agony of charity and feeling the weight of the sins of the world. That's a very beautiful and harmonious approach. I think it's very similar to the approach of John Paul II in his writings. as well. It's similar, I think, to the Catechism of the Catholic Church, 1994 Catechism of the Catholic Church. But you have other, you know, views and the dangers are, I guess, twofold. One is to have a Christ who doesn't really suffer, who pretends to suffer, because he's really got it all wrapped up, you know, from yeah. the start. But the other one that's more common is to say he has so much solidarity with us that the dereliction he's experiencing is kind of a hopelessness or a right. despair right. Or, or a uh, a catastrophic feeling of separation from God, or even, as Calvin says, an experience of damnation. Hmm. Calvin goes as far as to say Christ is punished for us you know, experiencing the pains of the damned hmm. uh, so that we don't be damned if we're of the elect. And uh, it's kind of a horrifying image you find in, I'm not particularly sympathetic to Calvin's views. You can read that in Institutes of the Christian Religion, Book 2, Section 16. It's fascinating, but it's not at all a traditional Catholic view. And it seems to separate Christ as man from Christ as God, uh, or at least that's my fear. Yeah, and it yeah. also makes Christ a victim who's innocent is now placed in this terrible suffering. It also is a misdefinition of hell. Hell, hell by definition, is, is hell because it's eternal. And Christ is not only innocent, but he's incapable of being separated from the Father, yeah, or from his yeah. own divinity. Yeah. You know, the cry of dereliction is also complicated biblically. 
because it's a Psalm 22. Right. My God, why have you abandoned me? It's the beginning of the psalm. Right, right. And, it, and so if you presume that this uncle Jesus on the cross actually said that, and there's good reason just from a skeptical point of view. I mean, I think in general we should take the words of Christ in the gospel seriously as historical words, sure. unless we have some reason to think there's different versions. But just from a skeptical point of view, why would the community maintain that potentially embarrassing word? <laughs> right. It seems to me that, you know, the rabbi Jesus on the cross quoted the psalm. And if that's the case, as a rabbinic, I mean, he was more than a rabbi. We don't want to reduce Jesus to a rabbi. He used this teaching mechanism of his own era, which is you cite a piece of scripture as symbolic of a whole situation. And in that context, it makes sense to think that he's intimating that there is victory that is to come, in that because the, cause in the psalm, that's the first line, but it ends with the victory right. of the one who's suffering. Amen. You know, so there's Amen. some reason to think he dies with hope or faith, or at the very least, but I think it's stronger than that. I think he, as the Son of God, knowing full well that he's conquered sin and who he is and that the Father will raise him, he's promising that the victory of Psalm 22 points to him. And yes, he feels dereliction, and yes, he enters into the dark night of human confrontation with human sin. But in that dark night of confrontation with human sin, he also foresees, you know, the, the mystery of the resurrection and is stable and can promise us the victory. You know, so that that's the reading. It's in Aquinas, and it's a classical interpretation. And it's good that people, you know, debate these things, because it makes us think more deeply yes. about Christ yeah. and the resurrection. Absolutely. And the, yeah, and the crucifixion. Let me jump to, to the topic of controversy, and that is the descent into hell. There's been a lot written on that in uh, modern Catholic theology. What are the lines of uh, debate on this? The main reason that that has become, in a way, a renewed topic of consideration is because of the very influential work of Hans Urs von Balthasar, mm -hmm. great 20th century theologian, who was writing his theology often in concert with a mystic whose name is Adriana von Speyer, and who claimed to live the Passion of Christ, you know, weekly. And in the context of that spiritual relationship, or you know, relationship with spiritual advisor. Balthazar wrote a lot of theology about the descent of Christ in hell, which, like Calvin in a way, and also unlike Calvin, I mean, Balthazar sees a beginning in the crucifixion, that in the crucifixion, Jesus, in a way, entered into the experience of alienation from God and separation from God, or the experience of being distant from God that is akin to that of sinners, the most alienated from God, so that God himself, I mean, this is Balthazar's whole approach, God himself in the sending of the Son into the world entered into the deepest human alienation from God mm -hmm. precisely in the descent into hell at Good Friday and then in Holy Saturday, experienced the pains of hell, the separation from God, so as to then become a point from which to reconcile us to God. If, if that's know, the, the case, is hell redeemed then? Well, I mean, so another side of this is that Balthazar wrote a famous set of essays, which in English is called, and some of the English translations were put together in a book called Dare We Hope That All Men Be Saved. Right. And Balthazar tends strongly towards universalism. Right. So there is a way in which he wants to say that the cross has redefined hell, and that we know now that hell is only intelligible as something that Jesus has already, in a way, redeemed us from. It's a kind of an inversion of Calvin. Calvin has Christ experiencing hell only for the elect, which was the minority of the predestined where, in a way, with Balthazar, it's turned around, and Christ experiences hell to redefine it so that he suffers so that in a way that no one else will have to, or so that we can hope that all will be redeemed. There's a lot of issues here, and there's a lot of reasons to be skeptical about this innovative theology, despite its poetic magnificence and brilliance. Sure. And, you know, it, it, you know, he wrote it in a century where there's a great deal of evil, a terrible trial in Europe, 
and it's a way of trying to think about the redemption of the human race in the in the midst of awful, you know, political and and butchery. So anyway, I, you know, I, I think there's there's a sort of a context of this theology. Yeah. But here here's some things to you know consider. First of all, the descent into hell in the great tradition, both west and east, has a very precise kind of meaning. And it doesn't really pertain to Jesus crucified at all. It has to do in the great tradition with Jesus' soul separated from his body on Holy Saturday. And the way that because Christ has truly died a human death with us, his soul is a, a kind of instrument or principle through which God illuminates all the just who came before the time of Christ from Adam all the way to John the Baptist, mm-hmm. to bring everyone up into the glory of the attitude or the enlightenment of heaven, that all those who died in a state of grace from the beginning of the world, who had died in some kind of friendship with God in whatever hidden ways that we don't know about, mm-hmm. that all those people that were, as it were, waiting to behold the face of God were brought to the fullness of redemption and enlightenment and beatitude through the mystery of Christ's own death and descent into hell, his own soul separated from his body. And that happened on Holy Saturday, or that Holy Holy Saturday was in a way the mechanic or the the mystery through which the whole of the world of the the, the righteous dead were redeemed, mm-hmm. all the saints of Israel and all that. Okay, that's just something very different than what Balthazar is yeah, saying. Yeah. And yeah. my first worry is, like you can often have a kind of concern with modern innovative things that are very brilliant, but not necessarily traditional, that we're just losing sight of the actual tradition of the church. Right. So I think the first thing to say is we want to actually know the tradition before we go off and reject it for something that just has bright lights and color, <laughs> thought of very recently, may not have a, a real grounding in the apostolic doctrine. Yeah, yeah. No, that's, that's, so I think that's very, very true. important. Yeah. No, I agree. The I second agree. thing I want to say is there's a lot of problems with saying Jesus is separated from the Father. Jesus yeah. is God. God is one. We are monotheists. Israel proclaims monotheism to the world, and yep. Trinitarian thought is not a post-monotheist thought. Right. To be a Trinitarian is to be a monotheist, and to be a Christian monotheist is to be a Trinitarian. That means Jesus is God, the Father is God, the Holy Spirit is God, the Trinity is one, and there is one. they are one in being in essence. Right. So there's no way that the Holy Trinity can be subject to separation. Right, exactly. And, and so I think that there's real dangers about talking about Jesus as a person being separated from the Father that can create confusions that touch at the heart of Trinitarian monotheism. Yes. And the third thing I would just say is, you know, the tradition had many people contest the, the reality of hell or the eternity of hell, and popes have time and again, based on the Gospels themselves and the teachings of Paul and the apostolic tradition of the Church, informed us that, yes, the Church does abidingly teach that yeah. there is a threat and danger of our own damnation, and that damnation is real and it is eternal. And so we can't, as it were, mitigate against the threat of salvation, the, sorry, the greatness of the promise of salvation, but also the threat of losing our salvation. Right. We need to take seriously the responsibility we have to seek salvation and avoid separating ourselves from God. So we need to be careful about any kind of theological, I would call it, facile exit from the responsibility we have to, to, now, Balthazar, to be fair, talks, says we all have a responsibility. Each of us could go to hell. He doesn't, as it were, pass by those things. But he has a very strong inclination to believe that God's goodness has to vanquish all human resistance right. uh, if God truly loves us. 
But, you know, the tradition teaches that God loves us to the point of respecting our freedom to separate ourselves from God. Exactly. And so, you know, we're saved by grace, and God offers grace to every human being. But we can also refuse grace, reject grace, turn away from the help of God, refuse to repent, not acknowledge our sins. we we got to take all that very seriously. Yeah. So I worry about that from a pastoral point of view sure. when you talk about these, these, these topics. Yeah. Very well said. Uh, Father, let me thank you once again for taking the time to be with us. Love the work that you do, and uh, hope we'll talk again soon. Okay. The book is called The Incarnate Lord, and it's available from Way Press, and uh, I hope some of your listeners find time to, to read a few chapters. Thank sure. you so very much, and it's great to be here. Yeah. Uh, we'll have, we have it available in our online bookstore as well. The Incarnate Lord, a Thomistic Study in Christology, Father Thomas Joseph White. I'm Al Cresta.